Welcome to the Article to Audio podcast brought to you by the NAC team. NAC, N-A-C, stands for Negotiation and Conflict. NAC is made up of a team of scholars who are passionate about the teaching, research, and practice of negotiation and conflict management. We offer you this podcast series to highlight the work of global academic thought leaders who have a knack for negotiating and managing conflict. The Article to Audio podcast interviews authors who have published research on negotiation and conflict management that advances theory and informs practice in the field. I'm Michael Gross. I teach in the Department of Management, College of Business at Colorado State University, and I am your host. Today, we have Emma Levine and Maurice Schweitzer. Emma is an Associate Professor of Behavioral Science and the Charles E. Merrill Faculty Scholar at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Levine studies the psychology of honesty, trust, and ethical dilemmas. She holds a PhD from the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. Maurice Schweitzer is the Cecilia Yen Ku Professor of Operations, Information, and Decisions and Management at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Maurice studies negotiations and decision-making. We'll be discussing their article, Pro-Social Lies, When Deception Breeds Trust. Today's article is published in Organizational Behavior and Human Decision Processes, Volume 126, pages 88 to 196. In 2022, this article received the Conflict Management Division, Academy of Management, Most Influential Article Award for this 2015 publications. Congratulations on your scholarly recognition. Welcome to our podcast. Emma, let's start with you. Your article is fascinating. You challenge the assumption that deception harms trust by demonstrating that deception can increase trust. Can you share with our listeners a personal story that brought you to the study? Sure. So Maurice and I started this work when I was in graduate school. And my first year of graduate school, I was getting married. And I would often come to Maurice with these stories of wedding planning and what was going on uh, in my my very wonderful, but uh, sometimes ridiculous family. And one week I came in with this story, which was that my mother had lied to me. Uh, and the backstory was I was, you know, creating this wedding. We were planning it together and we ran out of wedding invitations. And my grandpa wanted to invite all of his friends to my wedding. We didn't have space. We didn't have invitations. We couldn't afford it. And my mom said, you know what? Don't worry about it. Go study for your qualifying exams in graduate school. We won't invite them. It won't be an issue. Don't worry. And two weeks later, I realized Well, I found out she told me that she had actually photocopied my wedding invitations and sent them to her father, my grandfather's friends, uh, knowing uh, somehow that they wouldn't come and that it wouldn't be a big deal. Uh, And so she had gone behind my back and deceptively photocopied these invitations and sent them uh, and then executed this beautiful fraud. And it actually turned out quite nicely. It was to protect me and prevent me from stressing out in grad school and being distracted. And I didn't judge her for it. And I remember kind of talking about this for the first time and being like, isn't that interesting? And I think that got Maurice and I thinking 
about like all of these pro-social lies we tell, right? This is kind of a quirky example, but the lies you tell to your spouse about how they look, to your students about how they're performing, uh, to your co coworkers about some of their skills, like these are a part of our social fabric and isn't it fascinating to know what they do? Um, and I think that was, that was, that was the beginning. And did you go to Maurice with the idea or did Maurice have your own personal experience as well that brought you to this study? I had been interested in deception for a while. And I think the weird disconnect between the way parents exhort their kids to never lie, the way employers tell employees not to lie, and yet the way we model totally different behavior, where we tell our kids, you know, tell grandma you love the soup, tell grandma you love the gift, or employers who want their employees to execute customer service in a way that may misrepresent how they're really feeling. So I think I've been interested in this. Um, I think Emma's experience sort of crystallized a particular kind of example. And I think the two of us were just very interested in deception and how that actually worked in interpersonal interactions. Um, and I think trust is Another construct I've been sort of playing around with, but I think it really took Emma to sort of, you know, pull it all together. Thank you. So Maurice, how does trust matter in the workplace and how does your study matter? So can you tell our listeners, you know, what trust is uh, and what it means when trust is violated? So we think about trust as the willingness to be vulnerable to others based on some positive expectation. That is, we think people are going to act in a kind, benevolent, high-integrity way toward us. And so we're willing to make ourselves vulnerable. We're willing to take some risk or take some chance. And broadly, we think of trust as this incredible magic ingredient. It allows leaders to lead more effectively, negotiators to negotiate more efficiently. It facilitates so many great things. Now, it can also go too far. So we might trust somebody that we shouldn't. But in general, we think of trust as this incredible lubricant for every economic system. Now, I think, you know, here's what I think is interesting and important about this work is that before this, everyone, and in fact, I had written work saying that deception harms trust and that deception causes enduring harm to trust. And that's what I had thought. That's what the literature sort of largely assumed. And yet, I think what's so, so fun about this article is that we're showing that, well, maybe that's not true. Uh, maybe it isn't deception at all. Maybe it's just selfishness. And that so often deception and selfish acts go hand in hand. And if we could disentangle those two and really think more carefully about what deception is, maybe we could understand deception and how it impacts trust more carefully. Thank you. Emma, in your article with Maurice, you distinguish between benevolence-based trust and integrity-based trust. So what do they represent? And can you illustrate for our listeners how they're different? Yeah, so, so to me, this is one of the most interesting outcomes of this project was really thinking through this difference between these two very different types of trust. So benevolence-based trust reflects a willingness to be vulnerable to someone based on their good intentions towards you. 
An integrity-based trust reflects a willingness to actually rely on someone's words. And so I, I like to think of this example of seeking out feedback. It allows you to envision someone kind of high on each type of trust, right? So you could imagine who would you go to for feedback if you want to be pumped up and comforted, right? You're not always sure you're going to get a straight answer, but you know that you'll be talking to someone who's kind and supportive, who has your back, right? That person, that person's probably high in benevolence-based trust, but maybe low in integrity-based trust. Alternatively, we could think about, you know, the person you would go to that you're like a little nervous about seeking out uh, feedback from, but you know they'll give it to you straight. They're not going to stroke your ego. They're not necessarily going to make you feel good walking away, but you know you'll get a true answer. Um, that person's high in integrity-based trust. You can count on them to tell the truth, uh, but maybe lower in benevolence-based trust. You don't feel as comfortable being emotionally vulnerable with them. Um, and, you know, we, we wrote this paper back in 2015, but you know, these ideas have also really shaped the way I think about kind of trust in leaders in a broader sense and, you know, how we make sense of some of the trust uh, decisions we see happen on a broader scale, right? We're often willing to support leaders. People are often willing to support leaders who will advance their group's goals, right? Who are kind of high in this parochial benevolence. I think you have my back. I think you'll support my agenda, even if they don't trust the leader's exact claims. And so we can see these dynamics both, you know, in the workplace, on in dyadic relationships, but also on a broader scale. Thank you. Uh, Maurice. Uh, you and Emma write about intentions are more important than honesty for building benevolence-based trust. What does that mean? And can you give us an example or two of what is meant by this? So the first idea is that we're separating, you know, intentions and sort of kindness from honesty. So when I tell you that, you know, Michael, you just asked me a really interesting question. I may be, I mean, actually it was a really good question, but 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 imagine that. I was trying to make you feel good. And so I was acting in a pro-social and kind way, even though I might not be perfectly honest. So we can sort of separate these two ideas. So sort of kindness, looking out for somebody else, or you can, you can imagine somebody before they give an important presentation, you might tell them, oh, that haircut looks great or that suit looks perfect on you. We might do things that are sort of kind and helpful or in a more serious kind of context that Emma's looked at, physicians sometimes mislead patients where they might do it for pro-social or sort of kind reasons. And we find is that it's that kindness, the benevolence that comes through and people are more likely to trust that person in a benevolent way. That is, they think that person's more likely to have their back than somebody who is much more honest, perhaps in a way that is less kind. Thank you. So Emma, relatedly, what are pro-social lies uh, referring back to what Maurice just shared with us, and how does it, does this type of lie increase benevolence-based trust and harm integrity-based trust? So pro-social lies, uh, by definition, are lies that are intended to benefit others. So Maurice gave you know a bunch of really good examples, uh, kind of the the prototypical examples you might face in terms of falsely positive feedback, but also, uh, you know, false hope in a prognostic setting. Uh, you could imagine false hope at a societal scale to avoid panic, right, about uh, an epidemic, let's say. Uh, so, you know, pro-social lies 
are a broad phenomenon is any type of lie that reflects positive intentions towards the audience. It's often right driven by kind of this desire to protect or care for the person. And that right, reflects benevolence. It reflects good intentions towards the person, but also a disregard for honesty and integrity. And so when we think about trust as also being rooted in either benevolence or integrity, right, it kind of makes sense how pro-social lies would then increase benevolence, which they signal, but harm integrity-based trust, which uh, they lack. Thank you. So Maurice, uh, you, you used deception and trust games in four experimental studies to find evidence to, to support your findings. Can such games in a laboratory experiment translate into real life, everyday deception, when it comes to trust and how so? Well, I think that's a, an important question. The way I think about it is that experiments allow us to isolate the causal links between constructs. So in our experiments, we use this deception game where it becomes very clear and we have checks where people clearly believe that this person lied and they clearly believe they were benevolent. And so we can really disentangle these things in a very clean way. And we can even refine that to disentangle pro-social lies that are mutually beneficial. So for example, if I tell my spouse, oh, you know, you look fantastic. And I say that both to make her feel good. And so I don't have to wait another 10 minutes for a wardrobe change. We might have like, mutual interests. Or if it's just purely altruistic, that is, I might lie just to make somebody else feel good in a way that might not benefit me at all. We find both types of pro-social lies boost trust. We're able to do these things very cleanly, very carefully in experiments and really disentangle benevolence-based trust from integrity-based trust and show that they move in different directions. And so I think experiments afford us this control and this very clean, careful manipulations. And then it's incumbent upon us to show that this actually happens out in the wild. And I think much of Emma's work has, has done this so elegantly and impactfully by, by taking this out into the field and, for example, looking at how physicians communicate with patients. I think, I think you're right. That is, ideally, we'd use multiple different kinds of methods to study the same phenomenon and see how it sort of carefully and cleanly works, the mechanics work in experiments, and also see how it works in practice. Very nice. Thank you. So, Emma, for our listeners familiar with research methods, can you tell us a little bit about the complicated trust game that you used in this study? What is this called? How did the game play out? Tell us more about it. Sure. So, so to measure benevolence-based trust, we use a standard uh, what is known as a standard trust game. And this is basically a two-player game uh, where the truster is given some amount of money. Uh, they can either keep that money for themselves or pass that money uh, to the trustee. Now, if they pass that money to the trustee, the trustee faces a decision uh, to either return some of that money or keep it for themselves. So if the truster passes, the money actually grows. And so then the trustee can keep all of that money or pass some of it back. And this is used to measure benevolent trust, but uh, in, in our paper, we call it benevolence-based trust because it really captures your belief as a truster in the generosity or good intentions, the benevolence 
of the trustee, right? So I would only pass you money if I thought you were going to have good intentions towards me and be generous and pass some amount back. And so what we find is that people are actually more willing to pass money to make themselves financially vulnerable to someone else who has lied to help them in the past. Uh, and, you know, past research, as Maurice alluded to, uh, past research that Maurice had done has shown that, well, actually, behavior in the trust game is harmed by deception, but that had always studied deception that was selfish or harmful. So if I lie to you to benefit myself at your expense, for example, in a negotiation, you know, you're not going to trust me. And we flip that and say, well, actually, if you lie to help me, I'm more willing to be vulnerable to you. Uh, and then I would just add that through the review process, we were asked to invent a new trust game. And Emma led the way in creating a totally new trust game. So, so you know, prior work, the existing literature has relied so heavily on this on this sort of foundational basic trust game where you can pass money to someone, the money might double, triple, or quadruple, and that person can return some money back to you or keep it all. And you'd only pass money to them if you have benevolence-based trust and expect them to return it. But there's some reciprocity sort of piece to that. It really just measures benevolence-based trust, not integrity-based trust. And so through this process, sort of in this article, we introduce a new game, the rely or verify game. Uh, and I think Emma is sort of the best person to explain it. Yeah, so so as Maurice said, you know, this was actually a gift from our reviewers. We had these studies in the, the original paper that uh, were scenarios that were much more similar to the example I gave you earlier, like kind of who would you seek out for emotional support versus rely on their words. And so we have this idea that there is this separation of benevolence-based trust versus integrity-based trust, but there hadn't been a paradigm, right, to capture this integrity-based trust. And so um, you know, the idea itself is quite simple, right? It's the willingness to rely on someone's words, right? Do you believe what someone says or not? And so we just had to create, you know, the incentives to, to bring that to life. And so uh, in this game, you know, you can think about it as modeling in an interview situation, for example, and then I can talk about the specifics, right, where uh, someone interviewing for a job has an incentive to overstate their credentials. So they kind of have an incentive to lie. Um, and as an interviewer, you're trying to decide whether to rely on their claims or to verify them. And verification is costly, right? You'd have to go and look up their references and find out if what they're telling is true. Uh, so you really want to rely on them if you think they're going to tell the truth. But if you think they might be lying, you would engage in this costly verification. Um, and so the decision to verify instead of rely means right, you don't trust their words. And so that's what we wanted to capture in this game. And that's basically what we, we did in, in, in an abstract way, uh, where a communicator gives you some piece of information, like the uh, number of the, the amount of money in this jar is odd or even. And then the person who receives that information, which is the truster who can trust your claims or not, can either take that information and report it to the experimenter or pay a fee to verify that. And the incentives are set up financially such that uh, the communicator, the trustee, has an incentive to lie uh, and the truster 
has an incentive to rely if they think you're going to tell the truth and verify if they think you're going to lie. And so we can look at the rates at which people rely on someone's words or verify those words to see how much they trust the integrity of someone else. Um, and what we find is that when you've told pro-social lies, even if I would want to be in a relationship with you, I trust your benevolence, I don't trust your words. I'm more likely to engage in this costly verification uh, and even more so than kind of is rational. Uh, so it's really undermining integrity-based trust. So I would just add to that, if I if I could, Michael, that I think what's so cool about this rely or verify game is that it taps into a different type of trust, where the established measure that we had used, this behavioral measure, the trust game, captures benevolence-based trust, and the trustor, the person who might or might not trust somebody else, goes first. Whereas in our game, the trustor, the person who might or might not trust somebody else, goes second and is either relying or verifying somebody's claim. And so the two different behavioral measures, this existing one that measures behavioral, so this this behavioral trust that's measuring benevolence and our trust measure that's measuring behavioral trust, measuring integrity, can lead to very different kinds of outcomes, which is exactly what we find with pro-social lies. I love the description that you gave, and I love the game. Um, I'm just curious. Uh, so there's, these are dyads. These are two people, the truster and the trustee. Does it matter? Just How does gender matter? Did it matter? Or ethnicity or age or any other kinds of things in terms of um, integrity-based trust? So we, we haven't found any systematic gender effects in our work. Um, you know, there is research suggesting that both women are more likely to tell pro-social lies and to receive pro-social lies. So this gender question does come up a lot in, our, in, in kind of answering these, these types of questions. Uh, we, we don't find them in our paper, but I know Maurice has other work on gender, I think in both deception and trust. Um, and, and I think it's easy to make predictions of what we might find if we focused in on that question. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a great question. Yeah, in, in this work, we just didn't find it. But but as Emma's suggesting that um, there's other research suggesting that women are more likely to tell pro-social lies, particularly those that might make people feel better, I think consistent with gendered norms or expectations. But but in our studies, we didn't find any, any differences. I was thinking of um, uh, the work um, from Bob Cialdini, on social influence and the more similar you are, uh, I would think that similarity matters in terms of how much benevolence-based trust uh, you find, or, or you know, it's more about similarity and differences. That's kind of what I was was getting at. What do you think? Well, I think you know, similarity is clearly going to be important. That is, we make we make judgments about other people based upon appearance, based upon homophily, the similarity. There's so many. There's so many triggers that are likely to cause us to be more or less trusting. I think that's absolutely right. And, and I think what's sort of interesting is where we might misplace our trust too. But in our studies, and I think this is one advantage of the very clean, sort of careful experiments that we ran, we're able to really remove and disentangle a lot of those things. We could have added some of those things back in, but that wasn't the focus of our investigation. Um, but we found is 
you know, with very sort of clean, careful methods without a focus on gender. We really didn't find sort of gender homophily or similarity effects at all. What advice would you give, and this is for each of you, what advice would you give about using deception with others? Isn't it unethical? So my thinking on this has evolved a lot since we started this work. Um, I think in doing this work originally, I you really stood by our findings, which are robust, that benevolence matters more than honesty. But as Maurice alluded to earlier on, as I've gone out and studied this in the real world, you realize there's a lot more ways deception can go wrong than they can go right, right? So what we do in the lab is we are trying to isolate these causal mechanisms. So what happens when deception does signal benevolence? But as soon as you leave the lab, you realize it's really hard to credibly signal benevolence through deception, right? So kind of similar to some of the things you said, right? If we're different, if I don't know your intentions towards me, or there's historical mistrust, or there's power asymmetries, right? I'm not going to take a lie that you tell me, even for good reasons, as a signal of benevolence. I might instead take it as a signal of paternalism. I might think you're judging me. I might think you look down upon me. Um, and so, I mean, I can get into the details, but there's all these nuances around when we actually make this judgment of benevolence and it's really in these specific circumstances in which the truth would cause you know emotional harm but also when someone can't learn from it right when it's really clear that the truth would cause unnecessary harm then deception signals benevolent intent and then can kind of have these positive social effects but it, it's it's confined to specific situations um and i'll also say that only caring about benevolence-based trust is, is somewhat myopic. And this has also been informed by kind of like what we've learned in the world over the past seven years. Um, we do form alliances, we do create relationships, we do seek out support from people who protect us, even at the expense of integrity. That's really costly in the long run to social functioning and, and social systems. Um, so 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 yeah like so my my general advice has changed over the years but i'd say deception is still very risky um and i would use it sparingly so i can't disagree with emma at all but i would add a couple of a couple of i think you know I, I, ideas that are more um supportive of deception in some very limited cases um first i think when kids start to use deception I think it represents an important milestone in our understanding, you know, that, that, that people can think and understand that what they know, the reality they know is different from the reality that other people know. And so I think it's an important developmental milestone. And related to that, I think we should be more explicit in offering guidance for when deception is okay and when it's not. So as opposed to, I think how most parents, and I'm I'm guilty of this myself, you know, raising kids by saying, hey, never lie, but then also turning around to say, oh, but you know, tell tell grandma you love the sweater, where we're leaving it as an exercise for the children themselves to kind of figure out what are the rules around deception. And I think the same is true in the workplace when we talk about, let's say, employees and customer service, we're we're sending mixed messages where I think we could be more explicit 
And there may be some domains where we do want or do expect some deception. And in fact, I was, I was recently um, just gave a talk at a police academy where they were talking about crisis negotiations. And there they sometimes do lie to hostage takers. And, and I think, again, it's sort of, there may be a few narrow contexts where we endorse deception, but I think we should be explicit and clear about that rather than sort of broad claims or assertions that deception is always wrong. And I think that I, th I think that's an important insight. And I think this work begins to to help us understand some of the nuance uh, around deception. Thank you. I, I, um, I've read the, the example where a lot of companies right now are doing layoffs and I have former students who will go to their boss and say, hey, am I good? Am I safe? You know, and the boss will say, you're good not to worry. And then they're laid off the next day. Um, I'm not sure how I, how I would think about that deception. Well, that's probably not a pro-social lie. I well, it could, be, it could be both. It but, could be, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... It could be for the employer. Certainly not altruistic. It, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's complicated, though. So so in one of my other papers, I, I do have this example um, where layoffs are impending. And so imagine you have that conversation and it's a Friday afternoon and on Saturday you're leaving for your wedding or it's just a normal Friday afternoon. So we actually find that people think it's more ethical and actually receivers want to be lied to if it's right on the eve of their wedding than if it's just a normal day. And so right to Maurice's point, we do have these very specific expectations of when I know it actually would prevent emotional harm and there's nothing I can do with this moment but spoil my wedding, right? Like that, I don't want the truth. Um, and so there are these situations, right, that, that merit deception and they are exceptional but they're also systematic uh and those matter Boris, did you want to say anything too anything well no no more? i mean you know as as always emma's exactly right so so i think yeah there are these cases and i think um you know maybe that's our next conversation together but um or your conversation with emma but 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 i think there are really interesting cases where we endorse deception where people want to be deceived and there are other cases where they absolutely don't. I think I think understanding this, thing, this distinction between benevolence and integrity-based trust is part of it. I think thinking about pro-social lies is part of it. But I think um, this this landscape is so interesting and so rich, where there are these unusual cases, um, but important cases where people do want to be deceived. This has been extremely fascinating. Congratulations again on your outstanding, uh, most influential paper award that you received from the Conflict Management Division from the Academy of Management time today. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Thank you. Thank you to our guests today for an engaging conversation. For more information about this episode, we hope you'll check out the podcast notes on the NAC website at www.negotiationandconflictteam.com. So that's one word, negotiationandconflictteam.com. There you can find additional sources and links to material cited in this episode. On behalf of our podcast team, Ming Hong Sai, Laura Reese, Jennifer Parlamis, Michael Gross, that's me, and Deborah Sai, thank you for listening. Please tell a friend about our podcast, and we hope you'll join us next time for another fascinating discussion that brings article to audio.